kind of like a football game. And all you did is you went in with a game plan and then you didn't make any halftime adjustments or no one's doing audibles. Like that's what I see in the space right now is like all this planning, but then there's no pivoting. There's no like, let's get information and react on like the right metrics on, on are we actually changing hearts and minds? Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Stephen McAlpine, CEO of Interval, which is a company that provides tools for real-time optimization of spending on political advertisements. Interval is the word interval without its vowels. Stephen has a good background for building a company in this space, having trained as a data scientist, worked in the commercial advertising world, and done precisely this kind of measurement at Hawkfish. Hawkfish was the firm built by Mike Bloomberg for his presidential run, so they got to do a lot of experiments at advertising measurement at scale. I'm interested in all this, so Stephen made for a very good guest. You should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Stephen McAlpine at Interval. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Stephen, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, happy to. Hi, I'm Stephen McAlpine. I'm the CEO of Interval. I'm a data scientist by training. Uh, I've been doing it for a little over a decade, so data science and mostly the marketing analytics context. But actually, the first half of that was in the commercial analytics side. And it was only around the 2016 election cycle when I finally got a chance to start deploying that in the political space on climate change issues, actually. And that kind of mixed professional background mirrors my personal mixed background. I spent nearly half my life in kind of liberal New York, but also grew up in a more conservative part of, in kind of rurallish part of Virginia. And my father is white and he grew up in kind of a blue collar Michigan community. And my mother's black and grew up in Jamaica. So that kind of mixed background for me has been a big part of my life where seeing the middle of things is um, informed kind of how I operate and how I feel like I need to navigate the world in lots of ways. How did your parents meet? Yeah, so they met in New York, actually, while in university, so at St. John's. Uh, so my mother had immigrated from Jamaica to New York, and my father had moved from Michigan to New York, and so they met in school there while studying pre-med, basically, curriculum. I, I have a fondness for mixed people because my two children are, and uh I think somehow that hybrid vigor is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you definitely get a perspective from it. And, and I think it also makes the world a little complicated, to be honest. Like there's there's multiple ways you you do and don't fit in. And so over time, better understand like how that is beneficial to you. But growing up, it doesn't always, it doesn't always make it super easy. Yeah. And this country is confused about such things. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm... Definitely biracial. I'm def black and white, but most I grew up kind of being told in Virginia that I'm black and not both. And that made no sense to me because I grew up being like, oh, there is no race, really. That doesn't matter that much. Like, And so the world very much decided that that was not true for me. What do you think are the roots of an interest in data science? How does that come to you? Yeah, well, I think it's it's a great way to kind of make sense of the world with hard metrics. Um, so data science, that's all about the practice of uh, at least the way I've been doing it in most of the marketing and analytics context, but also in like the public opinion research context. It's like, how do we understand each other through numbers? And then how do we understand communications and what they do through numbers? And that's numbers. Sure, there's, there's less debate on numbers than there are on some other aspects because they can root us in something concrete. 
And that concrete answer I kind of latched on to, my, my parents are physicians, so they're kind of researchers themselves. And I studied chemistry in undergrad and it was a very quantitative field. So I kind of latched on to getting those right answers, but ended up not wanting to go into medicine like they did and not want to go into chemistry. So marketing analytics is kind of a great way to, to deploy quantitative skills in a way that's not a hard science, in a way that actually connects with people. And I mean, at first it was for me, the commercial marketing analytics, which was around how people react to communications in terms of what do they buy? Are they engaging with your product? And so that was like one step towards making sense of the world through comms. But um, what I'm more excited about what I've been doing for the latter half of my career is what does this mean on the issues that matter on climate change, on who we're going to vote for, if we're going to vote on reproductive rights. So I like data science in that context is giving more concrete numbers to how we all feel about those tougher issues to deal with than like the commercial stuff. I noticed that you did two different master's degrees. Can you talk about each of them, uh, why you decided to do them and, and what you learn along the way there? Yeah, I better jump into those. Um, so the first one uh, was a master's in commerce at UVA. Uh, and for me, it was actually a transition to go from like the hard science world where everything's concrete and makes tons of sense to the business world where you have to make some decisions in ambiguity where answers aren't as clear. There isn't necessarily right or wrong. There's just a general direction you think makes sense to go to and an argument you have to build for that. That was a great program for me to transition from hard sciences to the business world and where I was actually introduced to commercial marketing analytics. Was that at the business school there or was it elsewhere? Yeah, so um, the concepts were presented there and they even had some companies coming in uh, like presenting what they do. One was called Dunhumby USA. That was all about using loyalty card data to understand their customers and like build out relative communications and then like learn from that. So test and learn. So they presented this. We will look at behavioral data and then use that to make better communications. And like, oh, this is great. It's quantitative, but it's about people. And there's like a goal is to improve the impact. And so I interviewed there and was excited to get that offer a ended up in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio for a little bit where the headquarters were. The first degree really kicked off my marketing analytics uh, career and transition from hard sciences to, to that. That was, I guess, over three years at Dunhamby. What was that like? Yeah, it was great. Um, I mean, there was also credit to Dunhamby for this. They had well, what was kind of a grad program where the all the new hires from university get like an eight-week kind of boot camp on what they do what Dunhambi does, like what are some concepts to consider, like what's their philosophy. But it was also eight weeks to make a lot of friends. So like I came in as an East Coaster to the Midwest and then immediately was spent eight weeks with a bunch of people who were all kind of transplants from their various parts of the country, just like learning the city. And uh, so I made a lot of good friendships there that carried on from Dunhambi. But part of why it was great to stay there. Um, I actually moved from Cincinnati to New York uh, while at Dunhambi. And some of those same friends I made during that program moved there to New York around the same time too. So it was great for that community, but it's also a good understanding of like, what does it mean to do marketing analytics at scale with the budgets that big marketers have like Kroger and Macy's and others who have really been building out these, these very thoughtful multi-million dollar media efforts to improve their customer retention, to acquire new customers, to help them find new products they might like. So it was a great opportunity to see scaled marketing analytics deployed across the nation to millions of customers. And after that was the second second master's? Yeah, so right between um, Denambi and my second master's, I went to Universal McCann, which is a media agency that was servicing Johnson & Johnson. They were doing media and optimization, marketing mix modeling, it's a specific type of marketing analytics there for their products. I learned a lot there, but decided that I wanted to get really to learn the more rigorous methodologies that are associated with data science. So the Columbia program is called quantitative methods in social science. It's a mouthful. It's a huge mouthful. I basically say it's applied stats. It's an applied stats degree that's really focused though on people. So I got excited about the program because a colleague of mine had been there and she told me it was great, but also because it was a chance to like take some of what I was doing in the commercial space and then think about more what it means for public opinion. How does analytics relate to 
how we as a society feel about issues. Um, so they have a pretty rigorous public policy component of the QMSS program and public opinion measurement portion. So I got the opportunity there to learn from professors like Andrew Gelman, who's a, a statistician um, who writes a lot about public opinion measurement. And, and a former guest on this show, actually. Oh, that's all, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, he's a great communicator, too. His classes were early in the morning, though. So I think he, like, I think they're 8.30s. They only wanted people to attend who really wanted to learn from him. Yeah. Um, so like a lot of regression models, I assume. Yeah, a lot of regression models, time series analyses, uh, mixed effects models. So some stuff that's really about like trying to get the most out of data that's like collected across the nation, but you might also want to learn about what's happening in a particular congressional district or state legislative district. So models that help you get the most out of, of data and then models that are there to help you quantify the impact of what they call in the research community, a lot of treatments. So like it, treatments for uh, most of us will now think about vaccines because that community, we've been talking about this, but a lot of the, the, that term comes from administering a treatment to some patients and not to others, but it's also media. So media is a treatment of a type. There's a lot of models at the QMSS program that were about identifying or discussed at the program that were about identifying treatment effects. So what happens when, when somebody is exposed to something or targeted for something or receives a treatment? What came next after you finished that up? Yeah, so uh, that was an interesting time because I, I went to the program like, let me just start being a student again and really focusing on just that. But a former colleague of mine reached out to me within about six weeks of me starting that program and asked if I wanted to deploy marketing analytics and in a way to fight climate change. And I was like, all right, well, I'm a student, um, so university is expensive. I could do a side gig that also feels like I'm using my skills to help on an issue that I care deeply about. And so I jumped on board for this agency that was doing uh, communications in a way that was uh, intended to move public opinion on climate change and increase support within Republicans on clean energy solutions. So while I was at school, I was also working with this organization on these initiatives. And so... When I graduated, I just kind of continued with them on that pathway of using data science to tackle climate change. Was that Anthro? Agency? Yeah, so that was Anthro. It was a kind of boutique media agency that was servicing um, political clients that were in the business of trying to boost support for clean energy. What did you learn there? Yeah, I learned, well, first off, the 2016 election, a lot of decisions that were made of one, one theory which was that Hillary Clinton would win and Donald Trump would lose. And so sometimes you can come in with a hypothesis about how things will work and it doesn't always pan out that way. So that's more like a high level, like some, you make plans and plans change and then you got to react. But also for me, it was a great opportunity to deploy marketing analytics on political races. So there were nine House races and three Senate races that well, the org we were supporting was targeting. And so I got to build out their targeting figure out who to go after, measure those campaigns, and then report back on what the impact was. So it was a really good first experience to do like scaled medium targeting and measurement. Yeah, scaled media targeting measurement. So and that's carried on for for where I am now because that was my first real experience doing that. Are they a good firm? I, I didn't know about them. Yeah, well, they were a small kind of startup and I've, I've had a lot of startup experiences now, actually. So they were a startup that actually that kind of morphed into a different organization afterwards. So most of us, the like Anthro, um, those of us that were there, ended up becoming part of a different thing, which is called First Street Foundation, which is a big nonprofit around flooding risk and, and, and now fire risk, uh, where it's about communicating climate change and, and providing information to everybody about what it means for them personally. So we basically moved from what Anthro was, that boutique media agency, to this nonprofit that was now on climate change communications and climate risk calculation. Are they still going? Yeah, so they're going. I was their head of data science for basically up until December 2019. So right when the political season started warming up, but they're still going strong. They built out a tool called what's called Flood Factor, which if you go on to Realtor.com, I think you now see a different version of it, which is called Risk Factor, which is basically property level calculations of climate risk. So how What's the likelihood that a home might experience a catastrophic flooding event? And how is that going to change in the future? 
And then now they've done that for fire. So yeah, First Street Foundation strong right now and their data is integrated on Realtor and I think a few other property databases that are publicly available. Of course, you have to believe that there is climate change to be doing all that. Yeah, yeah. And that's a tough thing. What's interesting is that there's some people believe they see the symptoms. They like, all right, it's getting hotter. That's only some people who live in those areas or people on the coast. Okay, it's flooding more. The seas are higher. I'm in South Florida. Used to flood once every three years. Now there's water on my street five, 10, 15 times a year. The people who are seeing the symptoms, who might have been a skeptic otherwise, they're, they're kind of moving forward. But there's all these people who don't see the symptoms themselves. And they're, they're tough because if you're skeptical still to this day, it's almost like they have to experience the event to even be movable for some cases. But I think there's more of it happening now. Heat waves are happening. Uh, hurricanes are hitting communities. And so some people are seeing signs that are making them at least a little more open. They're changing their minds about whether this is happening and whether it's human cause. It seems like you must have run into something similar in the vaccine resistance and hesitancy and the climate denier or skeptic world. Do you have any observations about like what's going on there with humans and and their the understanding they have and the way that sort of some subgroups tend to take up that kind of information willingly and others don't? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great question. I mean, there's, there's some work that Interval did on vaccine hesitancy, uh, both from who's hesitant and who's not, but also who is persuadable from media efforts. And we saw a lot of some interesting findings from one of these measurement campaigns where media alone was still helpful for moving those who more maybe were more in the center or a little bit more on the left who hadn't yet got vaccinated. So you could still encourage people who weren't so deeply entrenched against it with more media efforts. And this campaign I'm talking about happened, um, it's kind of the latter half of last year. So after the initial rollouts and so a lot of people who were excited to get vaccinated had already had, but there was still that tale of individuals who were babies. So from that, we saw that those who were kind of in the moderate and on the left were still movable, but just the kind of holdouts, remaining holdouts. But those on the very far right, sometimes even the more you communicate it, the more entrenched they get. Uh, so occasionally just not saying anything is the right move, both from a what will allow them to feel ready to get vaccinated, but also from a, if you have a budget, you sometimes just got to use it on the right part of the audience. You can't spend it across everybody equally because there's parts that aren't responding and you might as well use those dollars as effectively as possible by moving it towards the people who do respond uh, versus just going after everybody. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Unfortunately, I, uh, I'm not sure everybody's doing that. Tell me about the hawkfish experience from your, uh, from your lens. Yeah. I mean, hawkfish was one, I'd say is a, a wild ride and a once in a lifetime opportunity. Um, so in December of 2019, I got a, uh, message from a recruiter just basically being like, do you want to join an initiative to defeat Donald Trump? And for me, that was one, the one thing that could pull me away from doing what I was doing before uh, on the kind of climate side was this chance to deploy um, data science at scale to defeat the person that was you know, causing so much angst and personally felt like Donald Trump was the anti-Obama. And Obama was somebody who, like many, I think on this podcast, though, who instilled, instilled so much, I don't know, hope. And I saw myself in Obama. I'm like, oh, there's a guy, like a mixed race guy who's, who's breaking down barriers. And now this birther stuff is happening and, and it's racist. It was very much a, the ports of the United States are backlashing against all the things I believe in and hope for. And so when Hawkfish that was asking for people to join in and defeat the guy who was fighting against everything I believed in and moving us in the wrong direction, I'm like, I have to do this. And so the Hawkfish experience that was filled with people like me who just like, here was a chance to drop whatever else you're doing. And in the most intense few months of, I think, many of our lives, like build as much tech as possible and do all you can to first, because Hawkfish was also supporting Mike Bloomberg's primary, like first help Mike Bloomberg do as much as he can for the Democratic nomination, but then also continue to build things to go to the general election and have as much impact as we can, because it was one of those felt like once in a lifetime election that we just got to got to win. So the Hawkfish experience was just a bunch of people like me who dropped everything we could and had more resources than most of us have had before 
and did all we could to build tech that could change the outcome for November. Did you understand this as a Bloomberg effort from the get-go? How was it sold to you and how early into Hawkfish were you? Yeah, so I jumped in December 19. I think Bloomberg had declared just a couple uh, months prior. So really still ramping up his campaign. So I jumped in knowing that that was um, a big part of what we were doing then, but also that there was a commitment to carry the organization through the general election. And everyone knew that there's high risk for this whole thing. His primary is going on. The general election is going on. Who knows what's going to happen after? So um, and Hawkfish was a little different than the Bloomberg campaign because Hawkfish was a political tech firm that uh, had existed uh, actually even 2018. And then Bloomberg campaign uh, was stood up uh, late 2019, which very, very late for a presidential campaign. Was it funded by him? Yeah, I mean, he was definitely, he was backing uh, Hawkfish, obviously backed his campaign. Uh, I think there's some of, uh, there were some others that um, put, put some in, but it was Mike Bloomberg that was the primary source of funding for all these. I'm grateful for it. I mean, there's, there was a lot of resources poured in uh, and we got to try out a number of different techniques for using data to understand what moves the needle in political advertising. And he spent more than most, I think, have ever would ever spend in those few months in his primary. Like a billion in, right? Yeah, I mean, there was like forty million that was spent on YouTube alone in like two months. So uh, that was actually something I was well, the team I was on was like just looking at the YouTube spend. Uh, we look at other digital stuff too, but I was really focused on analyzing that. So that's just unprecedented amounts of political media spent in such a short amount of time, but also the the resources to know what what's happening when you do that. That comes with high and high spend and all the tech teams and all the data sources we were purchased. So we were equipped to handle it, except for time. <laughs> that was the only thing. We, we just needed more time. It was just so, it started so late. That was the roughest part about all of it. It's kind of the dream of someone uh, in political tech data analytics to have those resources to really test something and see what you can make happen better. Yeah. I mean, it was, I'm so grateful for that opportunity to, to, to learn so much there uh, and to work with so many people who were passionate and aligned on the same causes. It's just people drop their fang jobs, you know, Facebook, Apple, all, Google, but to just come here and, and do what we could. People took pay cuts, people dropped and they were CEOs or SVPs and were like, I'll just be an individual contributor. Like I'll just do whatever I can and deploy all my skills. And it was a special moment, but also have all these resources at the same time. So the, the typical problems you get in political advertising or just in politics about like, we don't have the resources. We didn't have that problem, which let us try things out that, uh, and also learn what we should and shouldn't do because we could try things out that I still carry to this day. And I think informs a lot of what Interval does about like what, what works and what doesn't, what's effective, who can afford it? How can we make things more affordable? Like a lot of that hawkfish experimentation and what experience there has made it easier to, to figure out what to do now as Interval is a much leaner organization and tries to solve the particularly the political advertising problem. Who did you find yourself rooting for in that primary? <laughs> well, I, I think you know my answer for that one. I was there for uh, Mike Bloomberg, New Yorker. Uh, part of my identity is that. Um, but I mean, there were other candidates there um, that you, you could root for. Uh, at a household, there's, there's a Warren supporter and a a Bloomberg supporter in mine, and I, I, sometimes that's at odds. At least it was at that time. <laughs> Especially that that debate where Warren kind of uh, demolished him to some extent. Yeah, I mean that was a tough moment, and I think um, for those of us who were like seeing the poll numbers and like wondering, oh, is this Mike Bloomberg long shot actually going to um, to to become the nominee and potentially the president. And that moment was very clear. That's when we all saw it all change from there. And Bloomberg hadn't been in the public sphere in that way for for a very long time. So, um, Well, he'd been a mayor. I mean, he'd been, but I guess he hadn't done a big debate. Yeah, I think the debate stakes that high is, was actually even anything for him. Um, and obviously the party had feelings about um, people with lots of wealth. So, um, and who've had us. It was this strange primary where I... Where there were six, seven, eight people who had their moment where if the ball had bounced a little differently, they might have been the nominee. Yeah. I mean, we were just talking about the experience at Hawkfish. We had polling dashboards throughout the office in Times Square where you just walk around, you could see the latest numbers or countdown clocks around and like we're till Super Tuesday in the general elections. So there's all this like 
constant energy of things are changing. There's not much time. Do what you can. But those numbers bouncing around, like that was that was experience. And then for us to see that he had a moment, we knew it was a long shot. Was also a proof that to somebody who is in the advertising space that advertising does have an impact. He spent a lot, but we also did do what we could to understand how to maximize that. And, it moved the needle. Uh, so yes, it does work. Like I think that's like prove that case. It's hard to compete ultimately with free media, with the coverage that people get. That was unfortunately one of the secrets to Trump, I think, was just getting people to cover him without paying for it. Yeah, I mean, earned media, but it always kind of find earned media and sometimes they'll do crazy things to get it. It's definitely much more cost effective. Um, and it's sometimes harder to understand what works and what doesn't for their media strategy. But I think they're all, they're, they're both com- they're complementary. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It's earned media and paid media. It's mobilization media. So media to help support people to turn out or persuasion media, media to help change hearts and minds. Like all of these are useful. They, they fit different needs. They reach different audiences. So I think it's, kind of all of the above is the right approach to handling media. How many people worked at Hawkfish ultimately? Oh, I mean, there are hundreds of us. Um, uh, and, and there were times with just eight new people a day uh, that, were, that were just coming in. That was spiked for a little while in between uh, December and January. So there are hundreds of us. And then the Bloomberg campaign is also like well, kind of the field teams in the thousands. But even in the, some of the offices was in the hundreds. So um, who, who was in charge of it? Who ran it? I mean, there, there's a few... I wouldn't say there's a single head of it all, but um, Josh Mendelson and Gary Briggs were kind of our CEO and chairman uh, who were running most of it for most of the time we were there. What was your exact role? What came across your desk? Yeah, so it started off uh, with me during the Bloomberg Democratic primary, really being more of an individual contributor. So I was like hands-on keyboard again, like analyzing ads, writing code, like trying to quantify what did this YouTube ad do versus this one, or like how are these programmatic ads engaging with all these Democratic primary voters? So I started off in that role, uh, but then morphed into, because I had a measurement background, me leading the measurement team basically for the general election and trying to build out as much tooling as we could to help support all the PACs and get that and in and, and, and issue orgs that were trying to, to change hearts and minds and win votes for the general election cycle. Tell me about that transition from sort of, I assume it went from more or less a support org for Bloomberg to broadening out and trying to help Democrats more broadly. Tell me about that transition internally. What did you see happening? Yeah, it was definitely, it took some thought and time to figure out what this means because it went from one of the most well-resourced candidacies of all time with more spent than anybody else to how do we serve kind of more normal organizations that have normal sized budgets and also have ways they've been doing it before and expectations about how it's done. So it was some identity finding and planning. We spent some time thinking about like, what do we do for the general election? What can we test? What can we do better? So I'd say like, like retrospectives, there's a lot of that. And then distilling, like what translates? So we were making tens of ads, like our Hawkfish was, every day for the Bloomberg campaign. That's not normal to make that much content. Um, so when, in a world in which you're not making so much new content every day, what, what then is useful? So we'd have those conversations. Um, so we kind of rebuilt some tooling, try to clean up our very tech side of things when I'm saying this way, but, but like our data pipeline so that when the general election uh, comes around and we're servicing lots of clients, we can handle all that data in a way that's um, easy to manage and make the most of it. So it's a lot of prep. Uh, I'd say prepping for the general election, testing out new measurement tools and getting a better understanding of how to build the right tools for campaigns of smaller sizes with fewer resources and fewer creatives and stuff like that. At that point, you're in a space that's already served by some other players, people who are doing data and people who are doing analytics. And how did you see the politics from your position of Hawkfish in the political tech world? Yeah, I think I mean, that was one of the things leadership and all of us are trying to navigate of, of um, there's this new firm that's coming in. It's very well resourced, but it's just serving the needs of 
similar to some other parts. I think we'd, we'd argue that we had some cool stuff that we were building, but realistically, you know, there weren't as many relationships that were built. That relationship building and like figuring out how to play well with everybody else uh, was something that I think Office was working on um, along the way. Yeah, I think that was difficult. It's like now when there are other offerings that our potential clients could go to, why Hawkfish? And why is that right? And why why something so new filled with some people who weren't part of politics and came from the tech world, why should they come in and, and tell people who've been in the political world for so long what to do? So there's a nice tension when there's people from political background and the tech background meet and discuss how to better improve what we're doing because there's some new and some new stuff that tech brings, but there's some wisdom that people who've been in politics bring too, and just some learnings of like, yeah, we tried that and this didn't work. So there was a lot of great conversations that did happen as part of Hawkfish um, when we were together trying to solve this, both political and tech. And I, I know that like Hawkfish leadership was trying to do that more, but it, it didn't know, I, don't, I don't know if it always worked in the sense of like not everybody wanted to engage in that conversation with this new firm, with a bunch of techies coming in and trying to help political experts run operations and with without the long-term relationships being built over years. Do you think that Hawkfish had substantial impact in a positive direction in 2020? Yeah, I mean, there were there's some races we worked on where we um, we helped them target, we helped them measure and optimize and move the needle where tens of thousands of votes were won. And we saw that from the measurement side of it all. So I don't know all that happened um, at Hawkfish. So from my point of view, I was really focused mostly on the soft side and like helping any org that that was spending money through Hawkfish and, and believed in us to target and measure, helping them get the most out of it. And I saw that we, in some cases, we did help. I also saw that there was just tension between new ways of doing things and old ways of doing things. And some of it that made the news was like, is the Biden campaign going to hire Hawkfish? To what degree is Bloomberg going to have influence through this? And, uh, th- you know, people being suspicious and then having competition. I don't know. Did you have a sense of what played out there? Yeah, I mean, I know there was skepticism about um, what's the real intent um, and of offers coming in. I mean, I could speak for myself and those that around me, and, and our intent was just to try to help. All we wanted to do was help. <laughs> that, that's how I felt. Um, uh, but I did know there was skepticism from a new player and, and an organization that was associated with Mike Bloomberg. Yeah, I mean, and it uh, in some ways maybe parallels other initiatives like in data that that also ran up against established players and relationships. So, yeah, it's. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, I think Alor is one that you're, you're talking of. And I, the lesson for me is that um, when I'm building Interval, if like we can, let's start small and let's figure out how we can work with others in a way that's additive to the community um, and see where it goes from there. I think that's just kind of, that's the approach we have. Did, did some of Hawkfish survive? What's the state of it now? Yeah, so I mean, Hawkfish ended operations, uh, I think, in May of last year. And we had a little bit of warning about it before that came to you. So that's also where the idea for Interval came from. During that time, people were figuring out what to do next. Interestingly, uh, if there's a single place other than one of the kind of big tech firms where, where Hawkfish individuals landed, it's Interval. So the team is mostly made up of Interval. I noticed that. That's a, a kind of convenient way to start a firm, it strikes me, where like the, the recruitment of talent and the bonding of people has taken place to some extent already in, in a previous operation. How smooth was the sort of startup or, or, you know, startups are hard, but like, how did you figure out what to do and who to do it with? Yeah, I mean, I definitely am grateful for the chance to have taken like some of what we built. Well, not not what we built, but like the experiences of what we built and the people I work with, and like continue trying to serve progressive community without having this whole. I don't know who I'm going to work with. I don't know like what to do, who to speak with. Like it was it was smoother than I think most because uh, when we. We knew that Hawkfish was going to end operation. I was able to have conversations with others. Like, do you want to just go back to doing what you're doing before? Or do you want to continue fighting this fight? Like, do you want to help campaigns make the most out of their media dollars? And because we know that that's a space in this marketplace. We, we saw too many individuals still wanted to use like likes, clicks and views to make decisions about, are we changing hearts and minds? So it was easier to just have these conversations with my colleagues to see who wanted to continue 
building something that we thought could help us win more uh, elections and change more hearts and minds. And so I knew the team is great. My co-founder, John Roberts, I was, and Joe Bloss, like the people on my team I'd work with, James Owens, Catherine Ravenscroft, Lila Cutler, like these team members. <laughs> I, I'd been in the trenches with reports of the cycle last time. And I'm like, you know what? Let's continue this thing. How do you become the CEO? Sort of a rude question, but like, is this because it's your idea? Is it because of the skill set that you have for leadership? How does that take place? Why? Yeah, well, maybe I had, I had a lot of energy to continue the operations. And I'm, I've led data teams before. So at first three, I was the head of data science uh, at Universal McCann. I was leading a team years before, though, of data science. I'd been in a data science role, but also from kind of a management perspective. And so that's helpful when you're building a data science org is to have been in a management perspective for data science. So that's part of it. Uh, I was also leading the, me the media measurement team at at Hawkfish. So I kind of been in that role very recently. When at First Street, before I was before, I was, was very startup and, and anthro, very startup feelings. I'd been kind of exposed to organizations that started from nothing and became something more that went from five people to 25 people. And so I think that's a lot of it is just a mix of management experience, really being passionate about this idea, like marketing analytics I've been in for a while. And then that kind of rolled into, all right, I'll, I'll start this, trying to build this thing and recruiting people who want to join me. Were you able to retain clients or transfer clients from Hawkfish into Interval? So, I mean, there were relationships that were made uh, and even some relationships that were prior to Hawkfish. Those relationships made did make it easier to find who needed services, who needed measurement services that could benefit from optimization there. So I had a network uh, and I knew of orgs um, that was beneficial to to getting us going because we actually bootstrapped the, the whole first year. Um, so we didn't raise any funds. We just got to work because we had a team and and we knew of, of, of organizations in the space that could benefit from measurement. In a lot of ways, I think that's a healthy way to start because you are directly then connected to the market. You have to sell things that people will buy. You have to sell enough of them to pay the team that you've assembled. And so those things kind of go hand in hand and you can climb a, you know, a ladder together or not, depending on, on how it goes. How did it go? Yeah, I mean, it's like product market fit, startup stories, looking for that. Like we we had that initially, <laughs> like we knew, uh, we had an idea and we knew who was interested in it. And um, and so we're able to get hit the hit the ground running uh, with that product market fit. That said, I mean, there's a problem we're still trying to address with measurement and optimization. Again, like I want, I want, I want measurement is meant to make media better. Uh, it's both. Uh, it's not just for the sake of it. It's the, it's the get more impact. But it's not always... It can, some view it as too expensive. So one of the things we've been trying to work on is making it less expensive. We started off with some business and uh, hitting the ground running, but we still want to be able to do that for more orgs easily. So that's been a lot of what we've been focused on is how do we deploy measurement and optimization to campaigns of any size and how do we automate it so we can scale, the power we're building can scale um, um, without us having to linearly hire more people for every single client we get. How do you distinguish what you do from other service providers in the space? Who do you see as your competition and in what ways are you different? Yeah. So what I want to kind of communicate here is that we're focused on measuring real media in real time against real audiences, like what's called in-flight measurement and, and, and doing it in time to change the outcomes of, of like elections. And so what we see in the space is that there aren't many research tools or measurement tools that are great for like quantifying persuasion. So hearts and minds, so we're changing hearts and minds while media is actually running. So what are, what are your YouTube ads doing? What is, what's your, what are your TV ads doing? What's Facebook doing actually on opinions while your media is running? So I think that's different than what some of the other tools are in the space, which are more about how do you prepare? So uh, there are a lot of there are firms that are doing great work on building like support models. So how do we estimate what potential voter support there would be for a candidate or how much they might support this issue? And then there's some firms that do creative pre-testing, which is let's build an ad and then we'll show it to somebody and we'll ask them immediately how they feel in kind of a controlled environment. Like is, an avalanche type of firm? 
Yeah, I mean, Avalanche, uh, they do a lot, I think a lot of um, like audience research. So like, let's understand how people feel on issues and then like analyze their free response to more get at the root of it, which is great. So that's like kind of the audience research side. Then like the swayables or um, like the pre-testing side. Uh, so let's test out some ads in a controlled environment and see what works and what doesn't there and then start trying to build a media plan to actually traffic that. And so I think there's a lot of that upfront. Let's build some good targeting models or get some audience research or like test out some ads in these controlled environments. What I haven't seen is like an independent, low-cost, in-flight measurement and optimization solution that allows campaigns in real time, like get an understanding of what's working and what's not. It's kind of like a football game. And all you did is you went in with a game plan and then you didn't make any halftime adjustments or no one's doing audibles. Like that's what I see in the space right now is there's like all this planning, but then there's no pivoting. There's no like, let's get information and react on like the right metrics on, on are we actually changing hearts and minds? I assume that like all of the media consultants are pivoting and changing and making new ads all throughout the campaign in response to what's happening in the world. But I don't see much like during the execution of a particular ad or campaign. Does it make sense for you to have clients that are the media consultancies as well as the campaigns directly? Yeah. I mean, media agencies are great partners because I mean, here they are. They know the stuff. They know ads. <laughs> they they want to get the most out of it. They want to communicate to their clients that they're, they're spending those dollars wisely. So both the organizations, but also the agencies themselves are natural partners. And I'd also say donors. So if you're somebody who is giving money to these PACs or uh, these initiatives and you want to understand what it's doing, you want to maximize the impact of those dollars, like we have something for you. It's like a tool to, to look at what those dollars are doing in real time, help you make decisions about how to spend it better, and then give you what had actually occurred at the end, like a post-campaign reporting. And I just say, like, this is what I, from my commercial analytics background, saw so much of. Like, everything was bottom line, like, ROI-driven. We need the numbers. We need them now. We want to pivot. Like, this is important. And, like, that measurement and optimization was so common there and much more mature in the commercial world than it is in the political world when it comes to how are ads actually working? And then how do I use those dollars better? So that's a huge gap I've seen is that executives are saying there's like not much happening in terms of real time's understanding of media wallets in flight. Who are you working with or who yeah. have you been working with? Um, so we've been working with uh, the PACs that uh, have run uh, persuasion media and like Michigan, Wisconsin and nonprofits that are supporting initiatives on climate change or vaccine hesitancy or voting rights. So those are the type of organizations we work with. Uh, and we're planning on working with a few more of this cycle that are trying to mobilize voters on uh, environmental justice and also on like economic issues. So I think there's, there's still the conversation out there. I'm like trying to put that forward for the left. It's like a case. So it's PACs and nonprofits. Uh, those are who we're working with mostly um, at the time. Would you be open to working with a Democratic candidate for president? And further, could you do more than one if there was a primary? Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely open to working with candidates and open with primaries and also wanting to just kind of build more tools so that we can just make these tools accessible to to orgs that are trying to maximize their media impact. Yes, could work with multiple by providing these tools for them. That's a goal is to be able to um, accelerate anyone's media that's on kind of the left and we're, we're ideologically aligned with through our tooling. What's the biggest challenge right now in, in moving Interval forward in the way that you want it to go? I think one of the challenges is like this value proposition of just measurement in the service of impact. It's not an academic exercise. Like there's a communications piece about this. I think there's some fear that like, oh, I got to spend money on measurement. Like, why am I going to do that? When the reality is it can help you save a lot of dollars um, because it can maximize the remaining spend you have. Uh, like we've seen two to three times more impact when media is measured and optimized. That's a lot. You spend a million dollars. Imagine if that had $2 million worth of impact because you learned how to use it. And that, Value prop, not everybody understands. Well, some people have started to notice that sometimes you spend money and you move things the exact wrong direction. So the more money you spend, the worse things are. I mean, not everybody can tell what the real world impact of of putting something out there is. It's just not always obvious. Humans are complicated. 
Yeah, I think your humans are complicated and we're diverse. So I think it's a great point you're saying there about backlash. Like sometimes you put a message out, most of the audience backlashes, and then it's counterproductive. Other times you put it out and half the audience loves it, half of it doesn't. And if you if you didn't understand that ports were responding and ports didn't, and then all you did is look at your results at the end of the day, you'd say nothing happened. But the reality is a lot was happening. There's just there were some nuances that would have been helpful to understand before it was too late. So why it's so important, like get these deep audience insights, these deep media channel insights, just so you can figure out what's working and what's not. That's not what's happening enough in this space. And I think we could do more if more more organizations and candidates were, were using tools like this. You know, one of the things I've wondered about in this area, and I don't know too much about it, but um, is like the duration of the change that you're measuring. Because it seems like there's a lot of things where you make some treatment you somebody sees an ad, maybe it affects them for 10 minutes or a day, but then it snaps back and it, it, they don't even remember it or they see the next thing. To what extent do you look at things over a long, longer time period or come back and look at them again? Because even something we're talking about like backlash, it could generate backlash but I mean, theoretically, someone could backlash, but then think about it longer. And then over time, it actually affected them in the right direction. Like, how do you sort all that out? Yeah, there's a lot of complexity in what you're describing. I mean, some of the concepts, like the decay effect, media decay effect. You serve an ad, it has some, some effect that over time becomes less and less and less. If you serve it twice, maybe that changes how much decay is. You serve it three times, five times, 10 times. Like, you could build more durable effects through repeated exposures, but there's still always going to be some decay. Some media, it really sticks with you, uh, particularly if you kind of replay it over long periods of time. Like Jake from State Farm ad. I say, oh, Jake from State Farm. Like they, they've been bringing that back for years, but only occasionally. And that's enough for us to remember that that little piece, all of us. I mean, when media is done well, you you figure out how to build persuasion, how to to get a, a media effect in, in the marketing analytics world, is something called ad stocking, which is basically like, what's the cumulative effect of media at a given time? You try to build that big ad stock, um, that big effect, and then you, then you have to figure out how to maintain it. So continuous measurement is a way to do that. Um, this technique is called media mix modeling, which also are helpful for that, uh, but it varies. I think some things are very fleeting and ephemeral. People see an ad, they forget about it. But if you do a good job of both building the ad, targeting it, and then following up at the right frequency, then you can stave off that decay for longer and then have a more durable effect. Um, and what's so interesting in the political advertising world, though, is like so much is this and, and this different trains of thought about like we only should spend for two months, you know, Labor Day only. And then there's others or we should spend before. I think there's a mix. It'd be helpful to learn a little bit before you go into the fall uh, so you can you can do better there, but you also need to learn what's working in that fall. So it's eight weeks of craziness that if you, if you can maximize the hundreds of millions, I think ad impact projects there's going to be 8 billion spent this year. Uh, so it's, it's not even a, gen, a presidential election. It's a midterm. Like if you, if all that craziness could be maximized, just imagine what you can do in terms of the impact you have. Do you, do you ever find yourself tempted to be part of making the ads because now you've learned quite a bit about like what works and what doesn't. And there's kind of a creative side to that. Or are you happy sort of more on the measurement back end, sort of separate from that? Yeah. <laughs> so I have watched my fair share of ads and I have opinions about them. I think what's, what's interesting though, and this is one of the problems with um, how ads are made sometimes is that those of us who have strong feelings don't necessarily know what the right ad is. We might watch an ad and be like, ooh, that resonates with me. But the general public might not feel that way. So I think my value add is to not bring in my conceptions about what works and doesn't from like a let's cut this creatives and instead say, here's what we're learning from the data um, as much as possible. Um, so I'm comfortable being the re reporting back and uh, trying to be as insightful as possible, but I may not also be creative enough to make a good 30 or a good 15. <laughs> so maybe, maybe this, I'm just saying a bunch of things because I'm not, that part of my brain isn't, uh, isn't as, as well-developed as uh, the other part. <laughs> I noticed that you joined the Higher Ground Accelerator, and I assume got some funding there. Um, tell me about uh, how that fits into the kind of entrepreneurial journey that you're on. Yeah, yeah, that's um, 
really grateful to be part of the Higher Ground Labs latest accelerator cohort. And we mentioned last year, Interval Bootstrap. So we were just servicing clients and building as we went along, but recognized if we did want to scale and like have a bigger impact, we got to focus more on product and automation. So we made the decision to just start focusing on building and making that a priority. So Higher Ground Labs was part of our fundraising round and it's been great for us as we build scalable products to move a little bit more from a services company to a product company. Um, so they've been, the coaching has been helpful. The network's been incredibly helpful. Um, funding's helpful. So um, yeah, it's been good because it's really made us think more about being a tech startup versus more of a consulting service. And that, that pivot is notoriously difficult, even if you're new and you're operating in a services sort of business model you need capital to, uh, or you need to be generating enough capital out of it to pay whoever's building the product that won't pay back right away, usually, unless you can really work it in and charge extra maybe to in the services side for it. What stage are you in sort of building product and kind of mixing your business model? Yeah, I mean, we're right in the thick of it. <laughs> I mean, we are right now deploying uh, um, uh, one client, uh, something we call the soft launch, which is like a small scale media test where we actually traffic ads for the client and then learn what's working, what's not. But it's all kind of smaller budgets to basically inform a bigger media buy. We're in the middle of it. We're testing out. That, that, that's something that took a whole bunch to develop that capability. And we're running that right now uh, for one. It was also the cycle. It's so cyclical with um, political media spend coming you know, so much in that latter half of the year. So it's actually been great for us to focus on building as much as possible in the first half of the year so we can execute as much as possible in the second half of the year. So from a potential impact, I'm grateful for the opportunity to, to be able to just focus on, on, on scalable builds versus service. Um, but we have more to go. I think there's a goal is to to kind of still do both this fall where we're, we're servicing some clients more heavily to make sure they have the outcomes they need, but we're also building products along the way that um, are more scalable. And then after the election, the plan is to continue seeing what from the service delivery can go into product and then start really preparing for 2024. I think that's where we're going for all of this. How many people work in an interval now? Yeah, it's about the eight of us uh, that are working there. Um, so we've been growing a little bit, but we're about the right size, I think, for where we are right now. We'll see what happens as we get closer to the election. Because uh, client services is important and we might need more help for, for making sure uh, they're all being attended to the way they need to. Who would you like to know about you? Like if you could, uh, you know, immediately have audience with the key potential clients, who would be on that list? Yeah, I mean, big packs, future majority, house packs, like that. that those are the ones that... Priorities. Um, priorities people, USA. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, America Bridge. Like these are organizations that I think we have a lot to offer to because they're um, hub project. People who are spending um, sums and want to learn and maximize it and persist across cycles. Like that persistence is so important to take learnings and then build on them. Um, so I, I think we're a good fit for for IEs in particular. Do you think um, it's? Do you think it's hard to to get them to understand why you're beneficial or do you think it's a relatively easy sell? I think it's somewhere between. I think there's parts of orgs that get it. Uh, like I think the people who are closest to the the digital buys are like, oh, okay, I, I want to know what this is doing. Is there a tool that tells me about if it's actually changing hearts and minds? Um, there's other parts of the org that uh, may not um, be more used to the other tools or may confuse us with um kind of pre-testing and targeting solutions. And so they hear, oh, measurement again. All oh, right, it's the same thing as everything else when we're trying to communicate. It. Or, or about, I, I already am doing that. Yeah. Yeah, already yeah. doing that. I think we've heard that like, oh, that's another creative pre-testing solution. I'm like, no, those are those serve a purpose. We're here to measure your, inf your, your ads while they're live and then tell you what, what, what's working, what's not. Stephen, one thing I realize I'm not totally clear on is like, how are you measuring these things? Are you surveying? people how are you figuring out who's getting treated how are you getting information about them about how they're changing what sits behind this in terms of what you're doing to measure and make all the models that you're making yeah that's a great question and i think the, the basic three components are information about targeting so who who is being targeted with ads and the more we know about that the is better. that is that on an individual basis because it's digital, like, does that include broadcast? Like, 
Yeah, so we're channel agnostic. So it can be at the individual level or the DMA level, the zip code level. So that information, like who is being targeted with media, whether it's a region or a person, um, that's part of it. And then we, you can measure with different techniques, whether it's individual level or DMA, but um, they're all measurable with the right, <laughs> the right tools, uh, whether it's causal inference modelings or media mix modelings, we, we deploy those. Yeah, to your question, the first piece is just, um, I know it's kind of jargony, <laughs> so, um, but uh, the first piece is like, who is being targeted with media? And the second piece of information that's important is you brought up is surveys. So we've actually built out um, a tool for distributing surveys at a cost effectively online on websites and in phones, phone apps that um, ask questions, survey questions, customizable survey questions on whatever issue it is. It's basically, how do you feel about this candidate? How do you feel about this issue? How, how likely are you to vote? Um, so we collect data uh, through surveys. This tool called Magnify is one of the modes we do on audiences as the media is running. And then we take that targeting information and the, the, the survey responses we're collecting and then put that together to understand what is happening. like which media channels are working, which parts of the audience are responding, which creative themes are effective. Um, so it's a mix of um, combining target information and surveys and our models that allows us to quantify the impact of media. Is that like, do you know Change Research? They, yeah. So they do polling. And then the last time I talked to them, which was a while ago, it was, it was, a, it was, all, it was all online and they would, like have ads running in games and all kinds of like creative next generation ways of getting people's opinion that wasn't just calling them up on the phone the way people did in times of your, what's different about what you're doing there aside from the audience and, and how you're obtaining information or the yeah. subject. Yeah, yeah. I think what they do is they're trying to bring down the cost of polling and audience research and making that accessible to more orgs. So instead of a 50K poll, it's 20K or 10 or 5K poll. They're really focused on that polling and audience research side. And those tend to be like longer surveys. So they, they recruit people to complete longer surveys where you can ask them a whole bunch of questions. And so for them, it's like low cost recruitment for longer surveys. What we're focused on is low cost recruitment for shorter surveys. So most of media is trying to move just a, a few KPIs, like which candidate do you want to vote for? How favorable do you feel about that candidate? Are you going to vote at all? So our tooling is really designed to have like a frictionless experience for audiences where they don't have to leave a website. Um, they could just add there for them. And that ad is a survey. They can just click, answer a couple of questions and they're done. It's super easy. And so it's more on that. Um, like we try to get a large N on a few questions to audiences that are being targeted for media. How big of an N, how big is a sample that you need to tell something well? Yeah, so this is the game with media measurement uh, on persuasion. It's like you need much more N than like a 400N congressional district survey. That's like, here's our head to head. It's the thousands. We need thousands of respondents. So, so I've been on projects where we have tens of thousands. But like when you're able to get that data set, then you're now able to understand, like, did we move support by a couple percentage points for a candidate and which parts of the audience moved and which parts didn't. So f very interesting stuff you've gotten yourself in the middle of, I think. Yeah, it's uh, I'm, I'm enthusiastic to do it because it's a data science problem. It's a business economics problem. It's a real world issue problem. Like these are the causes we care about. These are the issues we care about. And they're spending billions on media right now. And it could be done better. So I'm passionate. And the whole team at Enroll is about like trying to help us do that in a smarter way. And um, and and with this climate, uh, electoral climate right now, it's, it's tough. The Supreme Court just keeps dealing blows. The fight is real. Um, and so this is one way we can do it uh, is just try to help that media go further. Do you, I mean, if you pull back from sort of the specific clients and the, and the specific measurements that you're doing, when you look at this upcoming midterm, do you think you know something about the electorate that most people don't? Or what? what is your sense of how fixed it is and... Uh, and where it stands now. What I know from this is that we shouldn't come in with too strong a notion that certain parts of the population are completely important to write off. Uh, I think my background in commercial analytics was test and learn and like open yourself up, be open to the idea that some other groups might respond to your messages or not. So what I would say for this cycle is that there, there, even though some of those headwinds, 
we're not yet sure what's going to work and what's not. So we should still try and learn from that. Like that's what I know most of than anything else is we should try and keep it broad uh, because sometimes you get surprising results when you don't write off parts of the population and then you still try to communicate with them. Is there a question that I should have asked you that I haven't? Um, I think you've asked some great questions today and I, I appreciate the opportunity. So you've asked everything that I, I uh, would love to talk about. That's great. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. I hope you make a big difference out there. Is there anything else you want to say? Just thank you and look forward to you staying in touch too as um, the interval grows and maybe when, when they even get some of the stuff we build gets integrated in a van or something. I don't know. So we'll see. All right. Sounds good. That was Stephen McAlpine. Stephen is at intrvl.us. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.